Hey, Parker, how are you today? Hey, Carrie, I'm doing pretty well. How is it with your soul? Oh, things are, are well with my soul, particularly because we have Scott Russell Sanders on the show today. Wonderful writer, wonderful human being. So to everyone, welcome to The Growing Edge. I'm Parker Palmer. And I'm Carrie Newcomer. To the words and habit to us and how we live between the words. Scott, welcome to The Growing Edge. We're just delighted to have you with us today. Delighted to be here. I'm so happy to have you on the show, Scott. Um, I'm going to give our listeners a little background information I've known you, and, and when we've worked together on several projects over the years, uh, Scott has uh, more than 20 books published, including novels, collections of short stories, children's books, works of personal nonfiction, including Hunting for Hope, Staying Put, and A Private History of Awe. His writing examines our place in the natural world, the pursuit of social justice, and the relationship between culture and geography. Scott's a distinguished professor of English at Indiana University, and he has received numerous awards, including the John Burroughs Essay Award, the Kenyon Review Library Award. He was the 2009 winner of the Mark Twain Award, and in 2012, he was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Welcome, Scott. It's so great to have you here today. So, Scott, we're, we're going to start talking today with a focus on this beautiful book, Small Marvels. And I'm just very interested. Here's a collection of stories about um, a family in Limestone, Indiana. Uh, it, it's, it's fiction. It's, it's um, magical realism uh, to some extent. Um, it, it's, it's about a family uh, of memory and imagination uh, it's a different kind of story than the dominant tale we're reading today about who we are in this country and how people relate to each other. And I'm, I'm just really interested to know what, was, what animated you to go in this direction. You've gone in a lot of different directions, fiction, nonfiction, etc. But at this time in our history, what, was, what were the drivers behind you wanting to write small marvels. Oh, Parker, I have been writing essays for about 40 years, and the last 20 years of those essays have dealt with many dark subjects. They're subjects that are on the minds of every thoughtful person. War, militarism, racism, misogyny, uh, global heating, environmental problems. And so I've written not exclusively about those kinds of subjects, but a great many of my essays have been dark in that way. Cancer in our family, my sister, our son, uh, my wife's illness. So every once in a while, when the world became too dark for me, I needed to take a break from writing about hard questions. And so I would retreat to this imagined place that, as you mentioned, I call Limestone, Indiana. It's a fictional place. I say it's so obscure that 
people who make maps disagree about where it is, which is why it doesn't show <laughs> up on, on maps. And I wrote a little piece, actually, to introduce the book to potential readers that explains why I wrote these stories and, in particular, says something about the kinds of characters who interest me and also the quality of their lives. So if it's okay, I'll read it. It's just a oh, short Oh, please piece. do, yes. Thank you. Yeah, that'd be great. So follow the daily news and you may be tempted to despair of humankind. We keep fighting wars, cheating and shooting one another, dividing into hostile tribes defined by religious beliefs or skin color, squandering Earth's resources, and tearing up the web of life. Listen to the contemptuous speech of politicians, pundits, and power brokers, and you're liable to feel contempt yourself not only for this or that supposed enemy, but for our entire species. The algorithms on social media amp up anger and hostility. Even late night TV, which might seem like harmless entertainment, relies on ridicule for laughs, coaching us to scorn not only people we already dislike, but also people whom we had been naive enough to admire. Strife grabs our attention. Harmony lulls us to sleep. That's why news is littered with the language of violence. Just look at the headlines. Clash, attack, battle, scorn, troll, slam, humiliate, denounce, assault, harass. In the flood of images and words, strife rules as thousands of media sources compete for our ears and eyes. Even the highest quality news sources feature conflict, for they too must garner enough readers to please the advertisers. Too much of the time, I am one of those readers, sampling a dozen or more sources every day, but as my spirits sink lower and my view of humankind darkens, I realize I must take a break to recover my sanity and to recall our better traits. So I tune out the news for a spell and tune in the eternities. I watch birds, weed the garden, listen to music, reread favorite books. I call friends, I chat with neighbors, I smile at clerks in stores and strangers on the street. I track the moon through its phases, or I stroll in the park with my wife, listening to kids whoop and with glee. While avoiding the news, I also like to visit the quirky Mills family, who live in Limestone, Indiana, a city tucked away among forested hills. It's a place where odd things happen, often in the vicinity of a jack-of-all-trades named Gordon Mills. Centaurs and nymphs take shelter in a local cave. Alligators lurk in the sewers. Warm snow falls on the 4th of July. Cornstalks rise higher than chimneys. Crows lay claim to the courthouse square, and the northern lights shine down on the municipal dump. Gordon takes such events in stride and deals with them as part of his work on the city maintenance crew earning just enough to support a boisterous family. He lives with his wife, a formidable woman named Mabel, along with their four children, Mabel's parents 
and his widowed mother. Nine souls packed into an old house that falls apart as fast as Gordon can fix it. You will not find their hometown on a map, but you may remember visiting the place in dreams, the rare joyful kind in which puzzles are solved, kids flourish, hard work pays off, and love endures. You may also visit this offbeat place by reading Small Marvels, a novel and stories I wrote to express my belief that we humans, despite our flaws, are far better than the show-offs, hate-mongers, and crooks who so often grab the headlines. We are more likely to be kind than cruel, more prone to be peaceful than violent, more inclined to tell the truth than to lie. So if the world seems blighted to you and hope seems foolish, you might refresh your faith in humankind by taking a break from the news and paying a visit to Limestone, Indiana. Oh, that's beautiful. And it's, it's gosh, mm. it's, it's right on, on target for me. I'll just tell you a true story of the last couple of months. It was a couple of months ago that Carrie suggested that we talk with you about small marvels and other pieces of your work. And um, while I knew other parts of your work, I didn't know about the new novel, so I got it right away and started reading it. And at about the same time, as a, quote, good citizen, I thought, I ought to get better acquainted with this thing called Twitter that everybody keeps talking about, <laughs> because all of these infamous people apparently are sending us critical messages on Twitter. So I started looking at Twitter, and to my dismay, I found myself becoming insaner and insaner as the days <laughs> went by. <laughs> Because yeah. if you want a, a, a direct uh, uh, flight to Bedlam, just hop onto Twitter. It'll take you there every night, every morning. And you do get a little addicted because, as you said, this is the stuff that grabs our magpie-like attention. Uh, it's, it's, it shines and it, and it sends off fumes of various sorts. I won't try to describe them. But reading Small Marvels as that went along had, had two, two impacts on me, Scott. One was to remind me of what people are really like underneath it all. And I'm intrigued in Small Marvels with all the underneath themes. Here's the miracle of the Northern Lights happening. Well, underneath the Northern Lights is the town dump. And here's this very ordinary Midwestern town underneath which are these caves full of wonders, natural and supernatural wonders. But I was brought back to the reality of our human scale lives and was able to wean myself off Twitter. So thank you <laughs> from a grateful citizen. <laughs> As a public service. Public service, <laughs> an antidote, an antidote. To exactly. Twitter. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh for the soul. Yeah. Yeah. Publishers, of course, want writers to be active on social media. They want you to have followers. I have a website, but I have never, ever, for one minute, spent any time on social media. I don't say that to brag or to. It's just simply never interested me. 
I have the advantage of having grown up and fixated on books and nature and science long before I, my family owned anything that had a screen on it. I was 12 years old before I saw a television set and it was in a hardware store. And you will remember this, the original pictures, it looked like you were watching tiny figures through a snowstorm. That's what the screen, that's what the picture on the screen looked like. It was not a seductive medium for me. I would much rather go out and listen to frogs calling from the nearest pond than to watch anything on TV. So I had the advantage, and it was an advantage, I realized in retrospect, of growing up before there were <clears throat> very many indoor distractions. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, lucky lucky you and, and lucky me. I remember those old TVs. They were like going into a laundromat and watching a washing machine. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and some of your fathers, there's traits that you associate with your, with your dad, I know, with Gordon. Uh, it's not your dad, but there are some traits. Uh, and I remember in, a, in another one of your books, uh, an essay about your father teaching you the names of trees. Mm-hmm. And that that was one of the ways that you connected with your dad in, in the natural world. There's a great deal of my father in a number of my books and also of my mother. And in Small Marvels, the father of the family, Gordon Mills, does have traits that, that I admired in my father. A skill in the use of tools. My father could fix every device that we owned. Now, mind you, this was before printed circuits and so on, but he could fix everything we owned. He could weld, he could do carpentry, he could do plumbing, he could do electricity. And I learned about half of his skills. And he told me he had learned about half of his father's skills. So as we pass down through the generations, uh, some of those skills get lost. But the Mills family, with nine people in the household, four children, three grandparents, and then the husband and wife, who are the core of the family, are all working class. Uh, I grew up among such people. Most novels never ever mention anybody who isn't a professional. Everybody's doctors or lawyers or their te- their professors, their teachers. They might be nurses, but they're not likely to be somebody who works for the city maintenance crew. But every city has got people working on their city maintenance crew. And you can think of all the other labor that is carried out every day in America. And the people who do that labor, by and large, don't show up in our literature. And that's partly because the people who buy books and read read books tend not to be laborers. Well, I grew up among such people, as I said, farmers, carpenters, plumbers, people who worked in factories. My dad started out as a tire builder for Firestone. He also built houses. And I helped build houses as a boy. So I'm not glorifying anybody in small marvels. I'm just paying attention to a kind of family that rarely shows up in our literature. Maybe it shows up a little more often in movies but it doesn't tend to speak to novelists very often. Yeah, I, I, I was really struck by that, Scott, and, and struck in part because the Mills family uh, reminds me to some extent of my grandparents on the, on the Palmer side in Waterloo, Iowa, blue-collar family, hardworking people, 
um, survivors of the depression uh, were very careful about a penny, but very generous with all the other forms of abundance that they had to offer, including love for the world. I, so I'd like to talk a little bit about Gordon Mills, about what kind of man Gordon Mills is, because while he doesn't pop up in novels much anymore, he certainly pops up in, in the popular imagination, and especially in the world I know best, which is the sort of left-of-center political world, where the Gordon Millses become a kind of a crude caricature of a person who just doesn't get it or you know, isn't helpful in the political mix, is grounded in too much ignorance about what's really going on in the world. I mean, put quotes around all of that. I'm, I'm trying to describe the caricature that is often held of Gordon Mills. So I, I'm fascinated. Who, tell me more about who this Gordon Mills is. He's obviously a complex character in the story. He's, he's forgiving. He's warm. He's loving. He also takes out after this young man who chases his daughter <laughs> in a very direct and immediate way. Um, interrupting a school play to take this kid down, uh, embarrassing the daughter, uh, which must have taken some time to work out in the family. I don't know exactly what the aftermath of that episode was. But if you said the word politics to Gordon Mills, what, what, would, he th what would he think? Well, it's an excellent question. I think he would feel it had nothing to do with him which itself is a political position. It's a sense that whatever happens in the political world is not going to change his life. It's certainly not going to improve his life. His life is filled with his own work, his family, and his neighbors. One of the traits that Gordon exhibits that was very much true of my parents, but also of families on the rural roads where I grew up, is that they took being a neighbor seriously. Yeah. And uh, as a, not just a moral impulse, but a practical one, because you were gonna need help sometime yourself. And you hoped that the people that you helped when they needed help will reciprocate. And usually they do. An example, from the book, and I'll get to the question of politics because it's an important one and I'm a little worried about what his politics might be if he actually went to vote. I think he's probably not someone who doesn't vote. His wife, Mabel, is more likely to vote. She's got a little more fierce sense of especially local politics. But an example of Gordon as a neighbor he, as I said, he could fix things, he could make things. So he always goes to the dump and looks for things that could be mended. And then he either fixes them and uses them or he fixes them and gives them to somebody. He just can't stand to see something that is reasonably easy to fix, being ending up on the dump. So he and his little boy, his youngest child is Danny. He's six years old during the course of this year that the book covers. And they get an old snowblower and they fix it up and Gordon paints it fire engine red. And shortly before Christmas, the family is broke as they usually are. There's $7 in the checking account and 
Mabel is worrying aloud in bed with Gordon about, not about buying Christmas presents, but about buying food. And they're often in this condition because nine people are being supported by one public works salary. And Gordon does lots of odd jobs on the weekends to add to that salary. So he learns from Mabel that there's a big blizzard coming and he thinks, oh, great, I am going to go out. I can easily earn a couple hundred dollars clearing people's driveways and sidewalks with this, mo with this snowblower that I have fixed up. So Brighton, early the next morning, as soon as it was light enough, he cranks up the snowblower and sure enough, there was about eight inches of snow overnight. And he starts plowing along and he thinks, well, first he'll go and he'll clear the sidewalks of the widows. There are three widows who live nearby. And he always helps them fix up things and so forth at their houses. So he goes to the widows' houses first. And he says, of course, I can't ask the widows to pay me for cleaning their walk. So in each of the women, the, these elderly women, come out to the door with their purses or money and say, oh, no, 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 no. He goes away. And then he thinks, well, the kid's kindergarten teacher broke his leg. And he is such a great teacher, and the kids loved him. I better go do his driveway, and I can't take money from him. Well, just to jump to the end of the story, he spends the whole morning, and after a while, little Danny comes out and keeps him company. And Danny comes out to him and says, Dad, Mom tells me you're going to bring the bread home. And Gordon, of course, hasn't earned a nickel or hasn't received a nickel because he won't accept money from anybody. He always has a reason why he can't possibly ask this person for money. So he's, Gordon is going to get in trouble when he goes home. Mabel's going to say, Gordon, we really are broke. We need that money. I need to buy food. And as Danny is going back to tell Mom that Dad's on his way home, one of the widows shows up. And she's got a fresh loaf of bread wrapped up in a towel. She gives it to him. And Danny takes it back to the house. And Danny says, oh, I guess you are bringing bread home. <laughs> and as he, when he gets back to his kitchen, to, his, to, to the house in the kitchen, the table is heaped over with food, baked goods mainly, but casseroles and all sorts of stuff. A little magic going on here. You can't make a casserole that fast. You can't make a loaf of bread that fast. But... <laughs> People are bringing food and coming to the front door and bringing food. And as Mabel looks out the window and she sees Gordon coming back with his cherry red fire engine red snowblower and not a nickel in his pocket, and people are following him holding up food. Mm. Now, that gets to the magic dimension of the book. And people often ask me, they say, well, you know, you know, it's this sort of fantasy edge to it. I said, there is nothing in my book as implausible as a hummingbird uh -huh. <laughs> or a butterfly or love, right? I mean, we have this feeling towards things, towards music, towards people, towards places that we call it love, but it's a huge mystery. We don't know what it is. So the world is saturated with things that only seem ordinary to us because we haven't looked hard at them recently. Right, right, Again, absolutely. Look at, a, look at a monarch butterfly. If you're lucky enough to have one come through your yard or past your car or in the schoolyard, look at a monarch butterfly and tell me that the universe is not full of miracles. I'll just add two quick things to that. Number one, 
um, to me, I don't need to turn to magic to understand the story of all that food showing up on the table because I've seen the miracle of the loaves and fishes yes. happen in real life. It's based mm-hmm. on generosity. And the second thing I want to say is, and then I, Carrie and you can take this anywhere you'd like, but or any place else you'd like, but what you just described, Scott, is... That's a politics I can subscribe to. That's the politics I wish we had. That's a politics based on generosity and on caring for each other and on building community rather than dividing people, setting them against one another. Um, It's a politics of abundance. And God knows if any nation in the history of the world has ever had abundance as a possibility, we have it in the United States of America. So if that's, you know, if that's Gordon Mills's politics, I don't know that he would translate it that way when it comes to policy or to voting for candidates. I would, and that's a politics I could live with. Yeah, and I I remember that story from the book and after I read that story, I just had to put it down in my lap for a moment and kind of brush a little tear. I'm, and I think one of the things I, I really loved about this book was I think there's a longing. I think there's a longing right now for stories that really feature the kind of politic that Parker's talking about and the kind of generosity of spirit that um, Gordon Mills and his family exemplify you know that I don't I don't have to think of that that whole you know the the loaves and fishes idea of all these because I've seen that too I am midwestern now you know it's like okay something has happened everybody brings a casserole or you know comes over and you know mows a lawn or just I think that's one of the things that is a hallmark you know if you if you don't bring a casserole when something has happened they they make they make you move to another part of the country but I don't think it's just the Midwest. I think this impulse to kindness, this impulse to take care of one another, it's, it's, it's part of who we are as humans. And I really love this book because it, it says so in all kinds of ways. If to think of it as politics, as you're suggesting, Parker, and to think of it as the way humans manage to live together with some degree of harmony and cooperation makes me think how we tend to be better human beings toward people we know. That's a commonplace. And it's easy, unfortunately, to instill fear in us about people and places we don't know. So a person who would pull your car out of the ditch where I grew up, and I got in the ditch a couple times as a young driver on rural roads, and the local farmer would pull me out. I'd just go to the house and he'd get his tractor out or his truck and pull me out. Wouldn't even mention it to my parents. But the same guy might have been a racist. He might have feared Jews. He might have had ugly views of women, all that's possible. So we're 
complex creatures. We can have, we, we all have biases, we all have ignorances. The most sophisticated, highly book-educated liberal is profoundly ignorant because there's an infinite amount to know and nobody knows more than just a tiny fraction of it. Uh, I do think that our capacity for cooperation, for kindness, has a distance limit. It's harder for people to care about folks who are socially distant from them, like across the tracks, the poor people, the people with dark skin color, if your own color is light, people overseas. It's harder to work up compassion for and a sense of cooperation with people who are distant from you. And tragically, and I think criminally, there are many forces in our society, a lot of them in the media, a lot of them in politics, people prey on our ignorance of those who are different from us and try to frighten us about people who are different from us. And it doesn't make the people who get frightened evil. It just makes them human. Uh, it's very easy to divide us into tribes. It makes them, to some extent, victims themselves, I think, because to be that afraid through the course of a human life is to pay a terrible, terrible price. Um, I think ultimately what most of us want is to feel at home in our own skins and to feel at home on the face of a diverse earth. And if you're that afraid, you can't feel any of that. So the, I, I, I want to loop back to the novel in this way, Scott, and maybe this is a bridge also to some of your other writing. Um, it, it seems to me that given the empirical fact that we very rarely in face-to-face -face experience run into the other, right? Um, maybe more in New York City than in Limestone, Indiana, but even in New York City, it's possible to walk the streets living in a cocoon of human experience. So just the presence of diversity doesn't mean that we're actually meeting each other. But the fact that empirically experience of the other is pretty rare in our world. That seems to me to put a premium on, the, on imagination, the capacity to imagine the other, which of course his, historically is the function of literature and a wide range of arts, drama, music, poetry, etc., to introduce us to otherness in a way that doesn't require face-to-face -face encounter, but like small miracles, or small marvels, um, gives us a chance to encounter the Gordon Millses of this world and their families in imagination. And that in turn leads me to a, a common sense observation, which is what a shame it is that our schools are paying so little attention to imagination, to cultivating that capacity, which might save us as, as a society. Um, I don't think salvation lies at the end of the road we're currently on, um, but imagination has a role in, in saving us, seems to me. I agree entirely. The book that, of mine that preceded Small Marvels that came out in 2020 is called The Way of Imagination. Mm. And it's a book of nonfiction, 
And it's precisely about how the power of, of imagination, which of course can be harnessed for, for ill, the war makers can imagine how to carry out a war, uh, hackers can imagine how to break into your savings account. So imagination is a, is a power that humans have that can be used for ill. But all of the advances, I would argue, in human society advances not only practical discoveries in science and medicine and so forth, but all of the humanitarian advances required imagination. It required people, for example, in 18th century England and the United States, what became the United States, to imagine a world without slavery. There had always been slavery. Almost every society on earth had slaves. African nations had slaves, many of them. But people had to imagine a world in which slavery was just not acceptable. Similarly, some people, typically women, mostly women, but with a few sympathetic men in the 19th century, had to imagine a world in which women had the same rights as men. There was no society that we knew of where that had been true. It had to be imagined. So the, this capacity to imagine what it might be like to be a person different from yourself is something that the arts, and I would include film, certainly songs, certain television documentaries, but novels, poetry, plays, the power of all the arts includes the, the opportunity for the viewer, the listener, the reader to have a sense of, gain a sense of what it's like to be someone very different from yourself. Might be different because they lived at a different age or a different country or they're a different gender or they're a different race or they're in a different socioeconomic class than yourself. And as you said, Parker, the fact that our schools are increasingly devoted to science, technology, engineering, and mathematics famous STEM. All of that's good. I studied physics as an undergraduate. I love science. But we're not short of science. We're not short of technology in today's world. We've got abundant science and technology. What we're lacking is wisdom and compassion. Wisdom to tell us what technology we should be using and what using it for and what technology is going to be harmful and also compassion, so that we can feel a deeper sympathy with people, with other people, and in particular people who are different from ourselves, however you want to state that difference. Again, it's tragic that there are so many figures in the public world and advertisers and corporate executives who are busy interrupting that compassion, scaring us or trying to scare us about people who are different from ourselves or whom they're presenting as different from ourselves. It's quite striking when you ask people what they think of the honesty and quality of politicians in, in Congress will say they're terrible, they're dishonest, Etc. And you say, well, what about your own representative? Oh, well, he's good or she's good. Same with schools. 
You ask Americans, what's the state of education in America? They say, oh, our schools are terrible. They're just not serving children and they're indoctrinating them. What do you think of your local school? Oh, well, we really have a good local school. Because they actually know something about the local politician. They actually know something about the local school. And it's, it's almost never fits the stereotype of what it's like out there. The bad schools, the bad politicians. Uh, I, I don't have a solution to this challenge. The challenge is how can people develop empathy and compassion for those whom they think of or are persuaded to think of as other? Mm-hmm. I think, too, this capacity to imagine, you know, I, I, in this new book and also in your other novels and essays. Um, I, I think that's been a thread that has always pulled through everything I've written and uh, everything I've I've read of yours. Um, and, and along with this idea of imagination is also this idea of the capacity to wonder. And, and there's a lot of wonder in this book. Going back to your thought about all you have to do is look at a monarch butterfly. You were the one that told me at one point that monarch butterflies they start, you know, they start their migration. It takes four generations for them to get where they're going. Mm-hmm. And it's the fourth generation who has never seen where they started that goes back. Oh my gosh, that's, that's a miracle. That's a wonder. And that we're kind of surrounded with that all the time in the natural world, of course. But also um, in our interaction with each other, the miracle, the wonder of someone who brings the casserole, the miracle, the wonder of someone who reads this book and really tries to imagine. We turn to art in part because it renews our awareness of the miraculous nature of existence. The very simple fact of life. Someone, a, a flower, a frog, a butterfly, a person is alive. We have a word for it. We don't know what it is. That is, we don't know what life is. We know what the absence of life looks like, and we know what the presence of life looks like. But we don't know what life itself is. And so our very being is mysterious, is wondrous. And one of the gifts of art, and again, it's all the arts, it's music, it's the best films, it's paintings, it's photography, it's poetry, it's novels. The great gift of art is to renew our sense of wonder, our sense of openness to the extraordinary gifts that we have received simply by being alive for our stint on earth, uh, to look at things, to smell things, to taste things, to hear things. and. When we lose that, when we lose that uh, wonder, uh, we become old. Youthfulness, and all of us know elderly people who are youthful. Maybe they have their joints ache, but they have a spirit in them. They have a zeal for life and a sense of fascination and delight uh, that some 20-year-olds have lost. And art can renew that. The great mystical English poet William Blake 
said, and this is roughly how it goes, if the doors of perception were cleansed, the doors of perception were cleansed, we would see the world as it is, infinite. Mm. And you spend time with a young child, and all of us have had the blessing to do that multiple times for most of us. You spend time with a young child, a two, a three-year-old, and you realize that their doors of perceptions are still clean. That they can squat down on the sidewalk and look at a roly-poly and find it the most fascinating thing in the universe. And imagination is what keeps that alive in us when we're no longer two or three years old. And art can renew that for us, can cleanse the doors of perception again, can help us see things, hear things, feel things that we had lost the capacity to see or feel or hear. And again, going back to what you said, Parker, that schools are one of the places where children ought to be exposed to the whole array of imaginative work, not just rote work, but imagination. So it's just as important for kids to be able to experience art at school as it is to learn math or to do exercises in the schoolyard. It was a Wendell Berry quote about choosing the story. How did that go? I'm I, I'm going to paraphrase it, and I'll get it wrong. Do you do you, you know the quote I'm talking about about a, a life of of meaning? Yes, and Wendell Berry, being Wendell Berry, phrases it much better than my paraphrase because I don't have it memorized, but I know the passage you're talking about. And Wendell wrote that. The the meaning of our life, the significance of our life, depends on the story we imagine ourselves that we're participating in. Mm -hmm. And to just take a couple simple examples, if you imagine that the story you're participating in is making as much money as possible, that defines the meaning of your life. If you imagine that the story of your life is raising healthy, bright children who will lead good lives and be good adults, then that becomes, at least for the phase when you're rearing children, that becomes what defines the meaning of your life. If you're an artist and you think that the meaning of your life is to make songs that will speak to people's deepest yearnings and deepest aspirations, then that defines your life. We, too many of us in our society are invited or succumb to the invitation to define our stories as scrambling for stuff, for money, for positions, for size of houses or the right kinds of clothes and cars, because all that stuff is for sale. Whereas raising good children, healthy children, that's not for sale. Nobody makes money from that. Mm -hmm. Or speaking to people's hearts, is not something you can sell. Gordon imagines, you know, Gordon and his wife and his kids. And I love Danny. Danny is just like such a, a, a ray of light in this book. Um, you know, he, he, he imagines his story as being one of uh, love and wonder. And he kind of takes all this wonder kind of in stride. Like, oh, yeah, there's... 
northern lights like over the dump yeah that's kind of how it works you know it's like <laughs> there's something really lovely about of course of course there's miracles and wonder why would you not imagine that yeah and there are uh, a couple of his older siblings danny's older siblings veronica and Jeannie, are teenagers mm-hmm. and actually the older boy is also a teenager well veronica's 12 she's almost a teenager and teenagers, one of the one of the classic stereotypes about teenagers is they they know so much more than all the parents, all the adults around them. Even three year olds often know more than the parents know. They're convinced of that. <laughs> You're ruining everything. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, it was actually William Faulkner who wrote. He said, "You know, when I was fifteen, my father did not know a thing." And when I was 25, I was astounded at how much he knew. <laughs> how much he had learned. In the end how much he had learned, learned right? Maybe he learned it from that 15-year-old. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I think I think this uh, the latest couple of turns in our conversation point to something that interests me a lot, and I'm sure we're coming to the end of our time, unfortunately. But maybe this would be a, a good place to explore before we have to say goodbye. Um, we've talked about stories as introducing us to the alien other or the stranger whom we don't know, and stories as a way of appreciating the humanity of the other, which is deeply important in our time. I think we'd all agree at the same time that these stories and the use of imagination and the other as a mirror to ourselves, aid and abet self-understanding as much Mm -hmm. as they aid and abet understanding of the world and of the stranger. And I think for a lot of us, um, not just these days, but at any time in human history, so much begins with self-understanding, right? Not only turning with wonder to the world around us and it's all of its uh, small marvels, but wondering about ourselves, um, wondering where is that fear coming from in me? What, what is that rooted in? Um, why do I cling to beliefs that sometimes contradict my own experience? Um, why, why do I respond to a certain criticism uh, with a vigorous rejection, might that be a sign that that's a criticism I really need to listen to because it, it, has, it has, um, has such deep hooks in me? So there's this reflexive act of, of self-understanding that roots way, way back in uh, Western philosophical tradition and I suspect in other traditions as well. Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, And uh, I once added to that, if you choose to live an unexamined life, please do not take a job that involves other people. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Because you're going to do damage. And I sometimes feel like that's the world I'm looking at right now. But I just want to say... Praise to the novelists, praise to the artists, the musicians, the playwrights, the filmmakers, who are giving us not only ways of understanding the world, but if we will pay attention 
to our own responses, they're giving us ways to understand ourselves better, and we need to do that. I'm sure, Parker, you've had people tell you, and I'm sure Carrie has had people tell her, how did you know that about me, right? Something you've written, mm -hmm. something you've sung, speaks to a reader, a listener, and it's, they find it uncanny. She knows me. He knows me, or he, at least he knows this thing about me. And, and that's one of the most gratifying responses I get to fiction, but also to essays. One of my approaches to the writing of essays is guided by the conviction there's nothing whatsoever special about me. And insofar as I write about my own experience, I do so because I'm convinced that for many other people, not all other people, but for many other people, my experiences are going to overlap to some extent with theirs. And if by writing, my writing about them helps them understand more deeply something about themselves, then I'm gratified. Yeah, and I, and, and you know, this, I also have always appreciated that because you're very, you're very honest uh, in your work and when you, you know, in your essays, when you are writing directly about yourself and your experience, there's a certain honesty. You, you kind of don't blink the hard stuff, which I, it's something that I've really appreciated about, about your work and Parker's work in terms of hanging out with this collection of people today. Um, you kind of don't blink the hard stuff uh, and at the same time see it as a way in, uh, a way into not just wonder at the outside world, but also wonder and learning about the inner world. So, well, one of the things we do as we get close to the end of our podcast is we, we ask, hey, what's on your growing edge? So what's on Scott Russell Sanders' growing edge? Well, I'm at a point in life where many people I know, a, a fair number of people I've been close to have died. Mm. And I also have contemporaries and people a little older or a little younger than I am who are suffering ailments. So part of what my growing edge is, is deepening my understanding of mortality insofar as any of us can understand it. There's this deep mystery that we're, th we're thrown into existence and it's a glorious gift, even if it's filled with suffering. Very, very few people, even if their lives are very hard, want them to end. If it's painful at the end, they may want them to end. But people endure tremendous amounts of suffering without giving up on life, because life itself is so precious. But it's also finite. And that's a mystery. Uh, it's true of the whole universe. Everything made in the universe, stars, protons, people, frogs, everything made gets unmade. And what it was made from, the atoms, the molecules that it was made from, get reassembled into something new. And we're part of that flow. And so I'm thinking a lot about that. I'm writing some about that. And one other growing edge is to return to a theme that I have made notes about and wanted to write a book about for many years. And it, 
if I am able to write it, it would be a last book probably. And it's a book about what the world we share. Mm. That includes the air, the atmosphere, the oceans, biodiversity, all the world's art and science and knowledge, all the things we share, public libraries, public schools, parks, wilderness areas, the, those common shared goods are the overwhelmingly most important source of human well-being. But almost none of it is for sale. So it's not being advertised. It's not being embraced by the financiers or most of the politicians. So I want to maybe write a final book advocating for the shared world and, and arguing why and illustrating why it's the chief source of our well-being. It's far more important than our private possessions, than our bank account. So those are, I suppose, two things. Dealing with mortality and advocating for the commons, the shared world. Well, I'll, I'll sign up for the Scott Russell Sanders masterclass <laughs> on both of those topics. I'll do it right now. <laughs> I, I really look forward to your, your thoughts and your writings about both of those things, Scott. It's just been such a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you so much for the deep dive that you've helped us take into small marvels and uh, much larger. I think it was Blake who talked about how the microcosm opens up into the macrocosm. You can see the universe in a grain of sand. And I feel Blake, like today, yeah. today with you, we've looked through a variety of grains of sand, but we've seen the macrocosm in them. Thank you so much for that. And for those who are listening um, on, on our website, newcomerpalmer.com, uh, we will put links uh, on where to find the book. So um, you know, do check that out, and, and, and we'll have all those links there. Thank you, Scott. It was a great pleasure and honor to talk with two people I admire tremendously. You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out the next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation, too. And now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into the conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer. And much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation to Alison Quans for creative envisioning, direction, and production, and because she is a wonder.